Hey, my guest today is John Scully. He's one of America's best-known business leaders. He's got one foot in the history of Apple technology, which we all know about. Many of us use. It's In fact, I now read recently that 2.3 products in every American home right now is, an, is Apple. Wow, fantastic, unbelievable. So, And he's also got the other foot firmly planted in 21st century innovations that change the way the world does business. I mean, when John Skelly talks, we got to listen. You know, few entrepreneurs have had the success across so many fields as he has. His success stories include, listen to this, telecommunications, financial services, healthcare, high-tech, internet services, consumer marketing. I mean, Pepsi, he even was in Pepsi, and, and, and certainly outsourcing services. There's so much that John done, and we're so glad to have him here with me today. And I also want to thank all the folks that sponsor us, and because I want you to be thinking about your own business. Are you thinking about maybe owning a franchise? And give the folks at Liberty Tax Service a call. With 20 years in the business of taxes and franchising, they can help you become your own boss. And John Scully's a boss, so they'll help you show you what makes taxes such a great business. So check them out at Liberty Tax Franchise. And it is indeed a pleasure to be able to listen to and have on this show such a business icon as John Skelly. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Okay, the first question, John, I have to ask you, who played you better, Jeff Daniels or Matthew Modine? You know, they're, they're both terrific guys and very good actors. Uh, and uh, they each wanted to spend a little time with me uh, to kind of you know, get the uh, personality and body language and all, all of those things. Uh, so I've, I've actually kept up with both of them. And, uh, Is that right? Really, yes. We went to see uh, uh, Jeff Daniels. He was in a play called Blackbird, uh, which, which uh, won a number of awards on Broadway. Uh, just a very talented uh, actor, but both on film and uh, on the stage. And same thing with Matthew. So just uh, terrific guys. I was very fortunate to have such talented people you know, take on that Is role. it... Is it a little surreal though to see the guy that's playing you play you? Do you? I mean, it's just kind of kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's kind of weird. That's the right word. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go? Ooh, I wish he wouldn't have done that. No, or, no, or, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. As as Aaron Sorkin pointed out to me, he he, he said, "This is entertainment. This is not history." So, no, there are yeah, a lot, of, lot, like of, it's lot of creative licenses that were taken along the way. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The other day, I actually did an interview with Steve Wozniak on stage, where I, uh, he announced Wazu. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he he's he's crazy. Oh, I love Steve Wozniak. Yeah, Woz and his wife Janet are uh, great personal friends with my wife Diane and me. Uh, we uh, converse back and forth several times a week, if you can believe it, uh, and yeah. and we get together whenever we can and. Uh, just a wonderful human being. Just a wonderful human being. Yeah, both of them are, as yeah. you well said that. They are both just wonderful people. She's kind of a gatekeeper for him, which is kind of nice. A- because absolutely. I can imagine. When, when uh, they got married, um, uh, she said, new sheriff in town. And and yeah. uh, J- Janet is just a wonderful person, really loves Waz so much and looks out for him. And they're a great, great team. It, it's hard to get a word in edgewise with him, though, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, he's just bubbling <laughs> over with enthusiasm. He never never stops talking. He comes up for air every once in a while, and you can 
can get a word in. Yeah, but you, but at the same time, you, you, you talk to him, and he's more comfortable going into a big room and standing in the corner, and he and I talked about that. But yet, when you when you really engage him, he, he is bubbly. He is exciting. He is that kind of thing. How would you describe your own personality, John? I would say in, in some ways, uh, you know, I'm totally comfortable in front of an audience of 50,000 people or on television, you know, millions of people. doesn't make me the slightest bit uh, nervous or anything. And yet if I go to a cocktail party, uh, I'll probably be off in the corner somewhere. You know, in other words, it's, it's not my personality to uh, kind of uh, you know, be a high profile social personality, but you know, I'm totally comfortable talking to any group anywhere on, on any subject. Is that something you had to, to kind of learn being in the roles that you were as as a CEO? Well, I'll give you a backstory that some people don't know. Um, when I was uh, very young, up until about the age of uh, 16, uh, I could barely talk. Uh, I had a t- really? terrible uh, stuttering speech impediment and finally went to a medical hypnotist who uh, helped me, and and um, I worked my way through it. I said I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life not being able to, you know, communicate with people, and um, that's just what you got to do in life. You got to say, you know, I'm not going to let an obstacle uh, that I may have been born with uh, end up, you know, preventing me from doing the things I want to do. You, know, you only get one time around in this life. So uh, actually, what uh, would have terrified me even to get on the phone to talk to someone or to order. A pack of gum when I was yeah. you know, a young boy because I stuttered so badly, uh, which is why I'm uh, very involved with a group called Say. It's a foundation for uh, young people who have stuttering and stammering problems, and we've been very active with, with that through our foundation. That's one very motivational to hear that. Did you, you know, a lot of people ask me. They said, you know, what's the biggest thing you've ever done, or even your biggest mistake that you've ever done? And I said, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Um, you know, on both both fronts, meaning I haven't hit the the epitome of everything I think is a success personally or, or business-wise, nor have I made the biggest mistake yet, because I'm sure there are more to come. Did you ever think you'd be in the role and the level of success that you have today, that you've had over your career? Did you think that going in? Was that even in your mind? You know, not really. I mean, uh, I remember when I met Steve Jobs and he was 26 years old. Steve was absolutely convinced he was going to be the guy who was going to change the world. So it certainly was in his mind at a very early age. It wasn't in mine. Uh, I wanted to be an industrial designer. I wanted to start my own design firm. Uh, I wanted to then be a a really successful marketer. Uh, But I never dreamed of uh, having the chance to be able to work with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and you know, so many other talented people uh, throughout my lifetime. So I, I feel like an awful lucky guy. And, you know, a lot in life is luck, being in the right place at the right time. Um, the other thing which I've had ever since I was a kid, I never cared about toys. I all, always cared about, you know, parts. I like to put things together. I like to take things apart. Uh, I have an insatiable curiosity. I've had that as long as I can remember, you know, going back to five or six years of age. Uh, I was always interested in in um, electronics, and um, even though I'm, I w- didn't know anything about computers before I went to Apple, uh, I did know a fair amount about electronics. And I love being around really smart people. You know, I, I just love to learn. I'm a, a person who has a just a big curiosity. Oh, that's fantastic. So your last book was Moonshot, right? It was. Yeah. So. Yeah. So why did you write that? My brother, David, uh, I'm very close to my two brothers, Arthur and David. David had been this CEO of H.J. Hines uh, USA. My brother, Arthur, had been 
the CEO of J.P. Morgan's Worldwide Private Bank. And, you know, we've always been into, into uh, business and uh, we've been doing entrepreneurial businesses for a long time. And, and uh, David said, John, you've been so many interesting places. You've worked with so many interesting companies and things. He said, you, you really ought to pass on some of the lessons you've learned along the way to the next generation. And so it was my brother, David, who encouraged me to write the book. And, and I had incredible support from my wife, Diane. We are actually not only husband and wife, but we're uh, business partners in our family office and we invest together. Diane is a, a computer engineer and, and data scientist. So she's far more technical on a lot of these things than I am. And um, she was also you know, a big encouragement to me on the book. So you got two brothers. Which one of you is the most competitive? Oh, uh, my brother, David, by far. Uh, it's, right? Yeah, yeah. Every, every sport, you know, he's competitive. We, we would uh, play tennis or ping pong, and if we ever ended on a game where, you know, I or my brother Arthur won, he'd say, no, we got to keep going you know, <laughs> until he won. <laughs> is, is it still that way when you get together and play cards or play Nothing. a game or something? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Yes. It doesn't ever change, does it? No. Even No matter how old you get, That's you're right. still brothers, you're still doing the same stuff. Yeah. No, it's like it's like my kids are saying the same thing to me all the time. When are you going to stop treating me like your kid? <laughs> well, when you stop being my kid, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a, hey, let me take a quick break. I, I need to do this, and I, I'm sure, John, you've taken some private planes in your life, and uh, you certainly could talk to you about that and your experiences and so forth. I know I've done that in the corporate life, and now I'm still doing it in private life. In my private life today, I'm using a company called JetSmart. It's a mobile app revolutionizing the private air travel industry. It creates on-demand flights anywhere. I can go on my app. I can book flights uh, a couple flights at a time. I reserve my seats on shared flights. So a lot of flights are coming back deadhead and so forth. It's awesome. I can share the extra charter seats. So when I do charter a jet from, say, from here to LA or from here to Chicago, and I'm meaning here being uh, New York today, I can actually allow other fellow members for flight credit to take those flights so they can share it with me. And they put that out there. And so JetSmart is a great way of doing it. So flying private is now within reach. So download, this is all you have to do. And this is how I got started with it. I downloaded the JetSmarter app and uh, use the smart code, use this code SMART, S-M-A-R-T, that's it. And you discover a smarter way to fly. And full details and more, just go to jetsmarter.com or reach out to me and I'll, I'll put you together with them because I'm telling you it's a great way to fly. It's a simple membership. You pay a one membership and you fly as much as you want. And depending on where you want to go, and you can, there's different levels to fit your budget. So check it out, jetsmarter.com and use the code SMART or see me. John, you've taken a, a few private jets from your day, right? Uh, absolutely. I, uh, I owned my own plane for many years and then... Uh, we decided that, that uh, for the places we go, it was just easier for us to go uh, charter a plane when we wanted it. So, uh, yeah. yeah th- no, we just came back from uh, Africa. We were there for three weeks, and we uh, chartered planes throughout all of Africa. Oh, wow. That's a great place to go, too. Good, good. Not only just great seeing the scenery there, but great wine. They've got some great wine these days uh, over there. So what, what motivates you these days, John? I am motivated uh, by an incredible optimism for entrepreneurial capitalism. I believe in entrepreneurial capitalism. I believe it's the uh, future of the planet. And so uh, I'm fortunate enough that I uh, get to meet some incredibly talented entrepreneurs who are uh, often looking for, for uh, you know, mentors, investors, and uh, we invest and we uh, mentor. We only do a small number of companies. I'm not really looking for any new uh, companies at, at, at this time, but they're always in transformative businesses, you know, where you mm-hmm. have a chance to go in and say, 
hey, we can think about this industry in an entirely different way or even invent an entirely new industry. Uh, so that's what we're doing right now in healthcare uh, with my uh, principal investment right now, which is called RX Advance, a company we mm -hmm. started in 2013. It's, it's uh, uh, what's called a, a modern PBM, pharmacy benefit management company. It adjudicates all of the uh, you know, claims and reimbursements uh, to do with pharmaceuticals between health plans and and pharmacies and the pharmaceutical companies, but we take that data throughout the entire continuum of care, and we are uh, going after uh, what we call a noble cause of saying there's $350 billion every year of avoidable drug-impacted medical costs, and we can literally take billions of dollars of cost out for um, the health system and hopefully um, you know, make a real dent in terms of uh, an entirely new way of thinking about how do you deliver uh, prescription medications and how do you save uh, patients and consumers, you know, huge amounts of money from the way it's done today. It's, it's a very archaic system we have today. And so that's what we're working on. We, we'll do 500 million revenue this year. We'll do over 2 wow. billion next year in, in contracted sales. And we think uh, we're very confident we'll be over $10 billion by 2020. So you said avoidable. What, what's avoidable? Well, I'll give you an example. 5% of the population accounts for 50% of the health spend in the U.S. These are the chronic care uh, patients. They typically have uh, nine chronic care diseases. And the physicians who are writing the prescriptions for them don't always know what the other physicians are, are writing. And consequently, right. there's a lot of duplication. There's a lot of side effects. And we manage throughout the whole continuum of care with these people, being able to treat them at home as opposed to them having to be in hospitals, which you know, exposes them to staph infections and other things. For a lot less money, uh, we can typically save up to $10,000 a patient per year. So we're talking about, you know, huge amounts of money for the health system. And uh, the result is that uh, it, it can really bend the curve of, for example, I've been down in Washington talking to senators about the big debate, you know, do we repair Obamacare? Do we replace Obamacare? Do we give more authority mm -hmm. to the states? Do we, you know, move back to the federal government with single-payer systems? The real answer is it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> what makes a big difference is to say, how do we significantly change the way we deliver uh, prescription medications? You know, this is an $840 billion a year ecosystem, incredibly inefficient, no transparency, uh, very archaic uh, technology. And how can we go in and improve in a significant way the patient's experience and outcomes and significantly uh, reduce the, t the number of patients who have to be readmitted back into the hospital or have to go out of the emergency room and things of this sort. And so we're doing it with technology that is familiar to all of us in the non-healthcare world, but has to be adapted to the incredible complexity and special interest and in, in regulations of healthcare. And that's that's been the, yeah. the uh, big hurdle. And, and we've been able to accomplish that with our team. Was it in primary mobile technology or... No, it, or just it, all digital, yeah, just all digital across the board. Yeah, it, it's all digital. It's what's called the cloud platform. Yeah. I mean, Amazon yeah. has a cloud, okay. obviously, with Amazon Prime yeah. and stuff. But what makes it uh, uh, a lot different than just starting a website on AWS, Amazon Web Services, is that we have to be able to deal with all of the complexities of eligibility, of working with formularies, yeah. of you know, how do you stay within government regulations and and price changes on drugs and all of that. So it's it's very, very, very complex. And so uh, we've had to be able to adapt to the domain expertise of healthcare. And our team has uh, 
uh, on average over 16 years of doing things like this. Our company is only a few years old, but, but we had a previous company called IFA Systems, which was also very successful, which we sold, and then we started this one in 2013. So did you see this uh, yourself and firsthand? You said, hey, man, this is, I mean, because we all know what it's like to, to have to talk to different doctors, and each time you go in, they ask you to fill out the forms, and it's the same freaking form you get from one to the other, and it's a, and none of them, you, you wonder even where the forms go, regardless of that they even take the information down. But it, did you see this, or did someone bring this to you? We're very different than a venture capitalist. Venture capitalists uh, have... Uh, are on the lookout for uh, companies to invest in. So they look at hundreds, even thousands of companies a year. We're just a family office, my wife and I, and uh, you know, we have kind of a virtual ecosystem uh, of uh, assistance around this. And uh, we have, uh, we only look at opportunities uh, with people who come to us, who we get to know first as as persons before we are even interested in they're a business because uh, being successful in an entrepreneurial business is always about the people. You know, it's not just cool technology. And uh, so we only work with people we like and people who like us. And uh, uh, we'll bring the capital in. In the case of, of RX Advance, uh, we only had to bring in $30 million. We took no institutional money. We just did it with mm-hmm. you know, ourselves and a few other uh, you know, colleagues. And um, we now have a company with zero debt that's you know, do over $2 billion next year. So uh, we, we only do a very, very small number of companies. And as I said, yeah, those are the ones you want to do again. Yeah. Yeah, I want to do that one again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. well for, for instance, we're, we're working on one now, which we part of a, a founding team that just did a spin out from Celgene of uh, Celgene Cellular Therapeutics, uh, which is now the largest uh, stem cell uh, factory mm-hmm. in the world. We only use the placenta blood cord stem cell, so it's non-germline. It doesn't have any, you know, you can't do designer babies or anything like that with it. And we focus on regenerative medicine. We merged in uh, Craig Venter's company called Human Longevity. Remember, Craig did the first genome sequencing back in the year 2000. So we brought in all those therapies. We brought in six drugs from Sorrento, all in regenerative medicine. And, um, you know, we think we're going to build one of the really great precision medicine companies. I'm also uh, working with John Mack, the former uh, chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley, and he and I and a few others are building a company uh, in the fintech world, uh, completely reinventing how you do uh, credit scoring for middle-income people uh, who haven't seen, for the most part, an increase in their uh, wages in, in over a decade. On the other hand, we can show them how if they can, uh, we can help them raise their credit score from maybe you know, 640 to 740, we can drop their uh, borrowing costs from maybe 20% per year for a big ticket item down to maybe 10%. And so we're working with the big consumer banks because they have massive amounts of data that we use our artificial intelligence engines to go in and very accurately, you know, far more accurately than has ever been done before for consumer credit scoring uh, and far easier. You know, People can't even improve their credit scores sometimes even after seven or eight months of you know, trying to talk to call centers and, you know, kind of a horrible experience. So we do all of this uh, through automation, and um, it's another one of these transformative businesses. Well, you, so we, we're talking pharma, we're talking fintech. Are these the biggest industries or trends that you see right now, or, or are there some others? Well, that's, that's certainly a big one. I mean, uh, marketing, for, which is kind of what I've been doing uh, throughout my life, uh, I co-founded a company called 
Zeta Global about 10 years ago mm-hmm. uh, with my long-term partner, David Steinberg, who's the CEO. And we are now, I think, the largest independent marketing cloud, um, certainly in this country, maybe in the world. Uh, we have about 1,500 employees, and uh, we work with you know, probably two-thirds of the Fortune 500 companies. And we do what's called life cycle uh, um, marketing, where we will uh, do consumer engagement, we'll acquire customers, we'll uh, increase uh, the loyalty of those customers, we'll monetize the customers, we'll do retention programs. And uh, it's just an incredibly powerful thing. We have a powerful machine learning engine behind it. We have over 400 million uh, you know, profiled names with thousands and thousands of attributes, which we're able to you know, help uh, design very custom marketing programs. So that whole shift to personalized marketing um, is you know something we're right right in the middle of. Well, and it's it's even more important as we get more and more data and more and more use of that data. So, John, if I can switch gears, I want to get back to this entrepreneurial capitalism for a second. I, I love the term and I love the, the space and I love the whole free enterprise system myself. So uh, I, I forgive me, but I can say that we're old dogs, okay? So as old dogs, all right, um, what do you think millennials need to do to compete in an entrepreneurial tech space today? I think you got to start from the position that we think technology is pretty cool. The millennials just think of it as a commodity. It's just always been there. And mm-hmm. the reality is that uh, we grew up in linear time, you know, days, weeks, months. You know, we kind of have an intuitive idea how long things have to have to take to get uh, done. The reality is we live in exponential time. Uh, we're in a nonlinear world, and we have not just one technology as we did when I went to Silicon Valley in the early days, Moore's Law, uh, which mm-hmm. you know, doubled every couple of years, you know, the performance uh, for the same cost. What we have today is probably five or six exponential growing technologies. And through a combination of these technologies, uh, they can literally reinvent the business architecture of every industry. And the implications are that the half-life of a technology is very, very short. So if you think you can build a technology with just a cool technology, a company with just a cool technology, uh, it ain't going to happen because the technology will commoditize by the time you get your company up and running. So you've got to have something in it for the customer. And the reason I wrote my book Moonshot a few years ago was I said, hey, you know, the world we're in now is all about satisfying customers. You know, what can you do to make customers really, really happy? Uh, just watch what Jeff Bezos has done at Amazon. Everything he does is about customers, customer loyalty, customer experience. Uh, Amazon Prime is one of the great success stories in marketing mm-hmm. today. Yep. And there, there are lessons there uh, with Amazon, is a good example, of that can be generalized and applied by millennials to many, many industries. But remember, the things that we see today with online-based uh, uh, platforms it's really just a tiny little percentage of the economy. Uh, so we're just in the early days of, of all of this stuff. It's, it's one of the reasons why you see SoftBank, uh, headed by Masa Sun, says he just raised a $100 billion fund, and he's going to invest in companies that use AI, and he's going to invest in uh, cloud platform companies. And he said, uh, and this is just the beginning. He said he'll probably raise you know another two or $300 billion funds, and he doesn't even care what the valuations are. Because he said, we're at one of those world-changing moments that the world is going to be just so different in the next 20, 30, 40 years that it doesn't make that much difference what you invest in at what value 
obviously there, you can have some bad investments and some bad companies and bad people, but, but he's saying general, uh, generally that, that we're going through one of these truly systemic changes in, in, in the world today. And it's all going to be built around how do you apply technology and make the application of the technology not about the technology, but about what you do for the customers. So I guess another question that comes up, what, what computer are you using right now? Are you a Mac guy? Yeah, I use a, a Mac. <laughs> actually, I use an iMac um, and I use an iPad and I use an iPhone. Yeah. But I don't really carry a computer much with me anymore. I don't really have much need to. So yeah. if I'm somewhere where I need a computer, I just borrow someone else's computer because I travel a lot. Uh, but I can do everything I want to do on an iPad and an iPhone. Yeah, and when everything else is in the cloud for the most part, right? Exactly, yeah. Did you envision, did you think about that when you were back in that role as the CEO of Apple? Did you think that was going to be the case at, at, back then? When I came into the personal computer industry, very few people even knew what a modem was. Uh, yeah. it, it, it was a uh, 300 baud you know, bits per second. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> dial up with hisses and whistles and so forth. There, there was no World Wide Web. There were no digital cell phones. In fact, there were no cell phones uh, except, yeah. except big bricks you know, that you could carry around. And uh, it was, it, it, computing was not about communications at that time. Uh, back in 1987, one of the top engineers at Apple came to me. It was actually 1985. And Steve Jobs had left, and he said, John, you know, next time we won't have Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center. I said, right. what do you mean? He said, well, you know, Steve got all of his inventions from Xerox. And I said, so what are we going to do? And so it turned out that this individual, uh, who was an Apple fellow as well as an engineer, was an adjunct professor at MIT, and they were just forming the MIT Media Lab. And so uh, I became very involved with, with that, and we ended up getting – um, so many of the technologies that people recognize as uh, you know, Apple technologies you know, came out of MIT. So Apple started by getting its original technologies out of Silicon Valley, but uh, many of them, including the ARM processor, which we co-developed, which is in 8 billion devices today, uh, a lot of our multimedia technologies, uh, our smart agent technologies, which today are known in products like Alexa, Cortana, and Siri, and so forth. Uh, all of those things originally came out of work we were doing at Apple with uh, MIT Media Lab. So I, it's amazing to even think about, you just mentioned Xerox Park, because I remember going to Xerox Park for many, many years and seeing so many different things that came out of there, like the mouse and so many others. But those things don't really exist like that anymore, do they? Well, Xerox Park has such a legacy of great innovations. I mean, the founders of, of Adobe came out of Xerox Park, the, uh, Bob Metcalf, who uh, invented mm -hmm. Ethernet, came out of Xerox Park. Um, you know, the mouse came out of Xerox Park. I mean, it just you know, everything that we take for granted actually uh, started in, at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, and the only one who didn't benefit from it was Xerox because <laughs> they were on the other <laughs> side of the country and they didn't really realize uh, how incredible these inventions had. would be because of Moore's law. As the processing power became more and more powerful, it only made uh, these inventions uh, more and more uh, important. So, so that was the first generation. And the next generation were the things which we got from MIT Media Lab, which, which were all around multimedia, smart agents, video, um, you know, services, you know, miniaturization of microprocessors that were low-powered, you know, like the ARM processor that we co-developed. Uh, all of those things you know, were, were driven by 
you know, our associations with the East Coast. Did you ever, when you think about things like, uh, you know, Xerox Park passed on this, and I was at Kodak, we passed on this and so forth. We talked about our, our mutual friend, Carl Gustin, who I replaced at, at Kodak. Did you ever have a thing, uh, an, uh, a product invention service or something like that, and you passed on it and you went, oh, that was stupid? I'm sure we must. I mean, I, 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 I can tell you that... that um, we had a small venture capital effort inside of Apple, and our board was who were all venture capitalists uh, were adamantly against Apple investing in other people's technology. So we had uh, invested in this little company uh, started by a young entrepreneur who came to see me one day named Rob Campbell. This is back in the mid-1980s. His company's name was Forethought, and he had invented this little application that he called PowerPoint, and we invested in it at $11 million valuation, and uh, our board saw it you know, uh, a few months later. We were trying to go uh, – my, my idea was to go beyond desktop publishing, which Steve Jobs had, had championed so successfully, to desktop presentation because screens were getting bigger and color and – and so we had to have something we could do on those screens. And so I was uh, totally taken by this PowerPoint application. So we invested in it. The board said, you know, we don't want you wasting your time investing in uh, other people's technology. So we were instructed to sell it. So we sold it to a company called Microsoft. Uh, and, it's, and PowerPoint today is probably worth over $100 billion. So, yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes along the way. We all make those mistakes. So uh, give me, I'm going to give you the last word. Everybody's talking about AI right now. What, what's your thoughts? AI is the new OS. Uh, uh, I, I, I gave one of the uh, keynotes last year at Money 2020, which is actually going on right now in Las Vegas this year. Uh, we were the only company, this is my company called Lantern Credit, uh, that was talking about uh, how we were applying artificial intelligence. Uh, this is not just machine learning. This was deep learning technology into uh, greatly create, uh, increasing the predictability of uh, whether people were credit worthy. And that was last year. This year, there's 655 you know, machine learning slash AI companies um, that have started up between you know, then and now. Uh, the reality is that AI is absolutely real. There's no question about it. It's, it'll improve at, at incredibly you know, big leaps and bounds, uh, but it's commoditizing as fast as it improves. But it really is, you know, just like the World Wide Web shaped so much of the last you know, 23 years, same thing is going to happen with AI. It's going to completely change almost everything we do because this time uh, we're not writing instructions to tell the computer what to do. The computers are learning from each other. And this massive amounts of data, particularly as sensors, you know, get up to over 20 billion sensors by 2020, uh, the amount of data that can be processed and analyzed and, you know, uh, find patterns out of chaos and, and, and do, you know, really useful things with, it's totally real. Absolutely. Well, John, I appreciate it. It's been insightful. It's been fun. And it's been great to connect with you. And I thank you for being on all business right here on C-Suite Radio. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. Hey, I can't thank my friends uh, for what a great, great, great episode. I'm talking about my friends at Jet Smarter for sponsoring this episode now. Look, these guys are revolutionizing the private air... 
travel industry. I talked about it earlier in the show. Unlike jet cards or fractional ownership, I love this. It's JetSmarter lets you create on-demand flights anywhere on the planet, or you can reserve seats on their shared flights worldwide. I mean, I can jump on one right now and fly across the country or fly to Europe or fly wherever I want. I can pick cities in minutes from a mobile app. That's all you got to do is download the app. JetSmarter is the only private flight service that lets you share your extra charter seats with fellow members in exchange for what? Flight credit. So you can take more flights, bring more people. No prepaid hours, no expensive brokers, just innovative air travel at your fingertips so that you can experience aviation as meant to be with JetSmarter. Flying private is now within reach. I love this product. I do, I do, I do, I do. I get to fly in fancy, fancy jets, and I love it. So download the JetSmarter app today and use the code SMART, S-M-A-R-T. That's right, I can spell it right. To become one of the world's largest members only, private aviation community, you can do it today. Discover a smarter way to fly, and that's right. You'll be smarter with JetSmarter. So visit their website, JetSmarter.com, for more info. And I want to talk about the things I learned because I learned such great things. I do. And i tell you what my big learning was today. We're not in a linear world. We're in an exponential world, right? Exponential times. I thought that was cool. It's kind of like playing chess, you know, not on a chess board, but on a three-level chess board, all at the same time, multidimensional. I mean, this is like new rules for the way in which we're doing things. And I thought that was a great way that John talked about that. And that's what I learned. And and how you apply, it's not how you apply the technology, but man, how you use the tech to apply it to the communities. That's the way. And keep those communities, again, valuable, valuable, valuable. And we learn right here on All Business. And I want to thank you. And don't forget, share this with your friends. So please do me a favor. Tell other people about the show. Tell other people about C-Suite Radio. Love to have you. Love to have you on here. And if you've got a suggestion on a great topic or something, give me a call. Drop me a tweet. Drop me a Facebook post. Drop me a, um, oh, yeah, even LinkedIn. Okay, wherever I'm at. Even send me a picture if you want to on Instagram because I'm on all those places. Thanks so much, and tune in again to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.